Hey everybody, and welcome to There and Back Again. I'm Alistair Stevens. This is an unusual afternoon recording session for me here in Central Time in the U.S. I'm here in Oklahoma City, of course, and I'm joined by a gaggle of people who don't usually get to join me live, who don't usually get to hang out here for the live There and Back Again sessions because of our usual European unfriendly time zone. So welcome to Zubbles, who is joining me here for the first time from Romania, which is fantastic, where it is currently 11 p.m. Time zones are crazy, you guys. We have Pete and Caroline and Fina is joining me here. Zandra is here. Jaron, Jerome. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly at least one of the times that I've pronounced it. Jerome or Jaron. I hope that you're going to enjoy tonight's live session. And Skipa is here and Sophia is here and Seastar is here. Guys, thank you all so much for joining me for the 36th episode of There and Back Again after something like... I suppose 50 hours of podcasting there or thereabouts. We have put The Hobbit and The Fellowship of the Ring to bed, and we are now ready to begin our discussion of The Two Towers. We're ready to begin the second volume of The Lord of the Rings, books three and four of this six-book, three-volume novel. It's all terribly complicated. Tonight, the first two chapters of book three, The Departure of Boromir and The Riders of Rohan, and we take a hard pivot away from the narrative momentum that we have established in the closing chapters of The Fellowship of the Ring into what is, in effect, a brand new story with a brand new protagonist. More on that later. Before we get to that, though, let's discuss for a moment the... um, title of this volume. The first title that Tolkien suggested to his publisher for the second volume of The Lord of the Rings was The Shadow Lengthens, which is strong and evocative and appropriately doom-laden, but somewhat ambiguous. He pretty much immediately recanted that and decided instead on the more ambiguous The Two Towers, partly in recognition of the bipartite structure of this uh, volume. Book three deals with Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli and Merry and Pippin. We'll get to Merry and Pippin next week in a session that I have already entitled Merry and Pippin's Excellent Adventure. Then book four deals with the adventures of Frodo and Sam. The Two Towers, therefore, seems to reflect the two halves of the volume, but which two towers are we talking about? What are the eponymous two towers in this volume? Well, Tolkien liked, originally, the ambiguity. He might mean Orthanc of Isengard and Barad-dûr, or he might mean Minas Tirith and Barad-dûr, or he might mean Orthanc and, and Minas Morgul, or Minas Tirith and Minas Morgul, or Orthanc and Kirith Ungol. We have a lot of towers that we're going to be dealing with in this volume, after all. Then, after some thought and consideration, he hesitated, wondering if the title was too ambiguous. And he wrote to his publisher, concerned that the title would mislead the author. His publisher reassured him, quote, It sounds pleasant, and the reader can exercise his imagination or perhaps speculative power on deciding which two towers were intended. Tolkien wasn't entirely comfortable with that, wasn't entirely comfortable with this level of ambiguity, and as he sketched the uh, dust jacket covers for the first printing of the book, well, he had two tries at it, actually. The first sketch featured Minas Tirith and Barad-dûr. Those were evidently the two towers that he was intending, but the second revision featured Orthanc of Isengard and then Minas Morgul, which is an interesting opposition. Two towers of evil kind of failing to embody, I think, the essential good versus evil conflict at the heart of the two towers. In the end, of course, any interpretation works. I like the interpretation that we are talking about Isengard, that we're talking about Orthanc, and we're talking about Barad-dûr. Those are the 
the focal points, if you like, of the effect of the shadow in this volume, but I also, of course, like the general applicability of Minas Tirith and Minas Morgul, the opposed towers on either side of Osgiliath. That's a powerful opposition that is representative of the heart of the conflict here in Gondor and, of course, beyond. So ultimately, we cannot be certain which two towers are referenced in the title, but Pick a pair. Pick your favorite pair of towers, and we'll go forth with that. Uh, at least until the end of our discussion. Right at the end of our discussion of two towers, we are going to circle back to the title, and we'll uh, have a brief discussion about which towers were intended, and if there is, in fact, an alternate, more thematically complex read of the title of this volume. So many towers, says Angela Lurie, and Lynn is joining us for the first time in forever. Hi, Lynn. Good to good to have you here. Oh, and Karen says, uh, Carolina, excuse me, says, uh, not from Europe, but still loving this time. Uh, good news. I'll say this right up front. Next week's session, in which we're going to discuss chapter three of book three of The Lord of the Rings, The Orochai, in which we're going to talk about Merry and Pippin and indeed their excellent adventure, will also be at this same time. That is 4 p.m. Eastern. And if you're joining me for Dear Mr. Potter next Tuesday, I mentioned in the most recent episode of Dear Mr. Potter that there was some kind of mutability when it comes to the scheduling for this next session. The next session of Dear Mr. Potter will also be at 4 p.m. Eastern. That's on Tuesday. So next week, Tuesday at 4 p.m. Eastern for Dear Mr. Potter, Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern for there and back again. Just a lot of afternoon sessions next week. And then we're going to return probably to our, our more America-friendly, our more U.S.-friendly time zones, which I know exiles a lot of you to listening to the podcast after the fact. But it's all Fine. Pete suggests that the novel, uh, the, the book, indeed, should be entitled Some Towers? Fair. Absolutely fair. Seastar says in the film, it's clearly intended to be Orthanc and Barador, with Saruman talking to Sauron about the union of the two towers. Interesting that it's more ambiguous in the books. We are going to have plenty of opportunity to talk about... Um, to talk about the connection between Orthanc and Barador, to talk about the connection between Sauron and Saruman in the pages to come, because... There are some bold adaptive choices made in the second of Peter Jackson's movie trilogy, and while they do a lot to clarify the relationship between Orthanc and Barador, they also occlude, I think, Tolkien's original intent. But we're obviously going to spend a lot of time talking about that in the weeks to come. We're going to spend... Gosh, I forget. 12, 13, 14 weeks talking about the two towers. There's a lot to discuss. Also, I should say, stay tuned because I am planning a live tweet, live chat, live something discussion of the Fellowship of the Ring movie sometime within the next couple of weeks. That's going to just be an extra session that we'll, we'll put in maybe on a Sunday evening. We'll see how that all works out. But yes, we're going to talk about the Fellowship of the Ring. Now that we've discussed the book, we're going to circle back around to the movie and talk about that a little bit too. And then, of course, when we're done with the entire novel of The Lord of the Rings, we're going to break down the movies in some depth. We're actually going to take two weeks per film and talk about them uh, as adaptations and as stories unto themselves. I'm really enthusiastic. I can't wait to get to all of that. Seastar says, my favorite is Minas Morgul because Shilob. Yes, indeed. Indeed. Good. Shilob makes me feel sick, says Fina. Yeah, I know a few people who have real trouble with Shilob, uh, both in the book and in the movie. And also, weirdly, in the new Middle-Earth Shadow of War video game, Shadows of War, I forget whether that is pluralized, uh, but that video game does something really interesting and weird with Shilob, which we'll probably discuss at some point after we're done discussing the two towers, because I've just been replaying the first of the Middle-Earth uh, the Middle Earth video games, Middle-Earth Shadows of Mordor, and it's weird, you guys. It's really weird. It's not a complete disaster, uh, narratively speaking, uh, in, in terms of Tolkien's canon. It's not a complete disaster, and we do some very interesting things, particularly with Celebrimbor. But... 
yeah, it's it's weird. Odd choices are made. So we'll talk about that too in the future. There's going to be a lot of there and back again in the future to come. I should accelerate too because I do have what we call in the business here a hard out today. We're going to run for 90 minutes today and not one minute more because I absolutely have to stop podcasting at 4.30 local time. So we'll get through as much as we can in that time. To recap though, before we get into our discussion of the two towers, we must remember that Tolkien wrote the entire Lord of the Rings as a single novel. This was supposed to be in Tolkien's original conception, one book. This is actually a volume in a larger work rather than a sequel novel. It was split into three volumes at the insistence of the publisher for two reasons. Partly because there was still a paper shortage in the UK following the Second World War, and partly because printing a huge giant book in 1954 would have made that book prohibitively expensive for the readers. So the, the books were split up. Uh, the Two Towers and Return of the King, as I say, weren't picked up as sequels. They were already ready to go before The Fellowship of the Ring was published. Two Towers was published six months after Fellowship. In fact, the first volume was released in July of 1954, the second in November of 1954, and the third volume was delayed until October of 1955, which feels like it would have been a hell of a wait. I feel as though were I reading The Lord of the Rings as it was released, you know, rather than, gosh, three decades, I suppose, after it was originally released by the time I was 10 years old there or thereabouts, um, that would have been a very long pause. So I'm glad that I haven't had to experience that myself. And I'm also glad that I'm not taking six months off between my discussion of The Fellowship and The Two Towers, just to kind of replicate that publishing rhythm, just to kind of make you feel as though you're experiencing this story for the first time. No, we're going to power onward into The Two Towers with, with nary a pause to catch our breath. Speaking of which, let's get into our discussion here with our opening movement here of the two towers and the switch of our POV to Aragorn. Aragorn sped up the hill. Every now and then he bent to the ground. Hobbits go light and their footprints are not easy even for a ranger to read. But not far from the top a spring crossed the path and in the wet earth he saw what he was seeking. I read the signs aright, he said to himself. Frodo ran to the hilltop. I wonder what he saw there. But he returned by the same way and went down the hill again. Aragorn hesitated. He desired to go to the high seat himself, hoping to see there something that would guide him in his perplexities, but time was pressing. Suddenly he leapt forward and ran to the summit, across the great flagstones and up the steps. Then, sitting in the high seat, he looked out. But the sun seemed darkened, darkened, and the world dim and remote. He turned from the north back again to north and saw nothing save the distant hills. Unless it were that far away he could see again a great bird like an eagle high in the air, descending slowly in wide circles down toward the earth. Even as he gazed, his quick ears caught sounds in the woodlands below, on the west side of the river. He stiffened. There were cries, and among them, to his horror, he could distinguish the harsh, the harsh voices of orcs. Then suddenly, with a deep-throated call, a great horn blew, and the blast of it smote the hills and echoed in the hollows, rising in a mighty shout above the roaring of the falls. The horn of Boromir, he cried. He is in need. He sprang down the steps and away, leaping down the path. Alas, an ill fate is on me this day, and all that I do goes amiss. Where is Sam? As he ran, the cries came louder, but fainter now, and desperately the horn was blowing. Fierce and shrill rose the yells of the orcs, and suddenly the horn calls ceased. Aragorn raced down the last slope, but before he could reach the hill's foot, the, the sounds died away, and he turned to the left and ran toward them. And as he turned to the left and ran toward them, they retreated until at last he could hear them no more. Drawing his bright sword and crying, Elendil! Elendil! He crashed through the trees. So Aragorn literally follows in Frodo's footsteps. We pick up right from the end of the Fellowship of the Ring. Sam, by this point, has already turned, of course, and, and raced back down the hill to Parthgallon, where he has found the invisible ring-wearing Frodo leading the boat away from the shore. He's cast himself into the water to be rescued by Frodo, and they have set off themselves. 
but Aragorn is having a very different kind of experience here. Firstly, we must question Aragorn's lack of vision at the summit of Amon Han with, uh, we should contrast it at least, we should question his lack of vision and contrast it with Frodo's abundance of vision at the seat of Amon Han. Amon Han is a Numenorean place. It was constructed by the Numenorians in ancient days, and of course Aragorn is of Numenorean blood. He is the inheritor of the throne. This seat of seeing should, arguably, work better for him than it ever did for Frodo. But it doesn't. And it's specific and conscious that it doesn't. Then sitting in the high seat he looked at, but the sun seemed darkened and the world dim and remote. Remember when Frodo is here, he sees the mists of ring vision, TM. He sees the mists of the wraith world, but then they part and he is given this vision of utter clarity of what is happening to the north and to the west and to the east and to the south. He sees the movements of war. He sees the orcs boiling out of the misty mountains like ants from an anthill. But Aragorn sees nothing. Aragorn is shrouded here. And we're going to get a couple of suggestions through the rest of these chapters, through the rest of today's reading, that suggest that Aragorn has fallen beneath a shadow, that something is specifically and almost arguably purposefully clouding his vision. He cannot see clearly what is happening. And we get that echoed here too with his, his cry, his woe here. The horn of Boromir, he cried, he is in need. He sprang down the steps and away, leaping down the path. Alas, an ill fate is on me this day and all that I do goes amiss. Where is Sam? And I think it behooves us here to kind of break that down a little bit. Alas, an ill fate is on me this day, and all that I do goes amiss. What has Aragorn done that has gone amiss? And what are we to make of this idea that an ill fate is upon him, and the connection there, the, the kind of implicit connection with everything that he do, everything that he is doing going amiss, and the question, where is Sam? So he runs back down the slopes of Amonhan, following the call of Boromir's horn, and finds, well, we'll get to what he finds in, in just a moment, but certainly the sounds of conflict fade even as he is rushing to the rescue. What choices has Aragorn made here? Well, he made two in the preceding chapter. The first, of course, was to grant Frodo the extra hour, was to say to Frodo, no, look, you're the ring bearer. This choice is on you. I am not Gandalf, but even if I were, I suspect that Gandalf would let you make this choice, would, would compel you to make this choice. You are the ring bearer, and our path must be decided by you. Then when he is talking with Legolas and Gimli, of course, he says, here's what I would do, but implicit in Aragorn's perspective on this entire situation, on the choice that Frodo must make, is the understanding that, yes, he too will go with Frodo if that is what Frodo decides. Everyone, it seems wants to go to Minas Tirith, or, or at least sees the virtue of going to Minas Tirith. Certainly Legolas and Gimli both, as they say, would argue in favor of Minas Tirith, but they both also say, but if Frodo decides differently, I'll go with him. So the first choice that, that Aragorn makes is giving Frodo the hour. If he hadn't given Frodo the hour, Frodo would never have climbed Amon Han. He would never have have been away and secluded from the rest of the fellowship when Boromir came to him. Aragorn knows that Boromir came to him, and though we don't get a clean perspective on what Aragorn believes happened, his urgency in trying to find Frodo suggests that Aragorn, much like Sam, has correctly inferred some of Boromir's motivation here. He has correctly inferred some of what has happened on the seat of Amon Han. So he races back down all the way to, uh, to the shores of the river, and he finds there, well the consequence. He finds the wreckage of Boromir. 
A mile maybe from Parthgallon in a little shade not far from the lake, he found Boromir. He was sitting with his back to a great tree as if he was resting, but Aragorn saw that he was pierced with many black feathered arrows. His sword was still in his hand, but it was broken near the hilt. His horn cloven in two was at his side. Many orcs lay slain, piled all about him and at his feet. Aragorn knelt beside him. Boromir opened his eyes and strove to speak. At last, slow words came. I tried to take the ring from Frodo, he said. I am sorry. I have paid. His glance strayed to his fallen enemies. Twenty at least lay there. They have gone. The halflings. The orcs have taken them. I think they are not dead. Orcs bound them. He paused and his eyes closed wearily. After a moment he spoke again. Farewell, Aragorn. Go to Minas Tirith and save my people. I have failed. No, said Aragorn, taking his hand and kissing his brow. You have conquered. Few have gained such a victory. Be at peace. Minas Tirith shall not fall. Boromir smiled. Which way did they go? Was Frodo there? said Aragorn. But Boromir did not speak again. Alas, said Aragorn, thus passes the heir of Denethor, lord of the Tower of Guard. This is a bitter end. Now the company is all in ruin. It is I that have failed. Vain was Gandalf's trust in me. What shall I do now? Boromir has laid it on me to go to Minas Tirith, and my heart desires it. But where are the ring and the bearer? How shall I find them and save the quest from disaster? There is, gosh, so much to question, so much to discuss in this very simple slide. Boromir's return to his senses, Boromir's return to his sanity is now clear. There is no equivocation. There is no hesitation. We discussed last time, in fact, whether or not Boromir was sincere when he returned to the camp of the Fellowship and said, um, yeah, just walking, walking around, ran into Frodo, weirdly, had a little conversation. Dude's doing fine. He's up on Amonhan. Everything's okay. I didn't do anything, definitely. And whether or not that was shame speaking, guilt speaking, or whether he was trying to eclipse his true motivations, occlude his true motivations from the rest of the fellowship, whether he was trying still under the influence of the ring to protect himself. And the response from all of you last week, if you listened to last week's show, was unanimous. No, no, Boromir is simply ashamed. He knows that he fell under the sway of the ring and he doesn't want to discuss it with the fellowship. But now, now that he knows the end is near, now that he has paid his price, as he says, he can tell the truth. And it's no coincidence that the first thing that he says, literally the first thing, I tried to take the ring from Frodo. And that's important because Boromir here is recognizing immediately that everything that has happened has flowed forth from that decision. That's why we are here. Hey, Boromir, why are you dying on the ground surrounded by at least 20 orcs, which, by the way, is a display of valor, the likes of which we have not seen in the Third Age? Well, I tried to take the ring from Frodo. I tried to take the ring from Frodo. He is taking responsibility for all that has occurred here. I am sorry. I have paid. And as he says, I have paid, his glance strayed to his fallen enemies. Twenty of them at least lay there. What is the, the payment that Boromir has made? Well, he has paid with his life. Yes, he, he himself has paid the price for his temptation. But also in this moment, he has repaid the evil of the ring. He has repaid the shadow. He has repaid the influence of Sauron. He has taken the lives of these orcs. He has destroyed, apparently, this entire orc warband, this entire raiding party. He has acquitted himself well, as a warrior would, as a warrior ought. He has acquitted himself well. 
They have gone, the halflings. The orcs have taken them. I think they are not dead. Orcs bound them. Then he says, farewell, Aragorn. Go to Minas Tirith and save my people. I have failed. What is the failure here of Boromir? Well, it's twofold. I mean, immediately he's talking about protecting the hobbits, of course, but in a larger sense, I have failed. I fell to the temptation of the ring. I fell to the temptation of evil. I have, capital F, failed. I have failed as men before me have failed. I am fallen in this sense. To which Aragorn replies, and this is crucial. No, said Aragorn, taking his hand and kissing his brow. The taking of his hand and the kissing of his brow there, the bestowing of a king's blessing. Right? This, is, this is the act of Aragorn the ranger, less so, and Aragorn the king, much more so. Here he is offering real consolation and blessing to Boromir. No, said Aragorn, you have conquered. Few have gained such a victory. Be at peace, Minas Tirith shall not fall. What is the victory here to which Aragorn is referring? Is it the number of orcs that are dead on the ground around Boromir? Well, no. I mean... Yes, in part, though, as Boromir acknowledges, that's, this is actually the proof of his failure. This is the proof of a, a valiant failure, yes, but a failure nonetheless. The hobbits have been taken. And for all Boromir knows, that includes Sam and Frodo. For all Boromir and Aragorn know, actually, that's the ring. The ring is now in the possession of the orcs. This is a catastrophe. This is about as bad as things can be. But no, says Aragorn. You have claimed a great victory. You have conquered. Few have gained such a victory. Be at peace. And this is the turn that I think it's all too easy to overlook when we're discussing Boromir's arc in general and certainly Boromir's fall. In the end, he conquers the ring. And very few people conquer the ring. Lots of people have fallen under the sway of the ring. Lots of people have been claimed by the ring and have done terrible things in... in uh, terrible things in the name of the ring to justify their desire for the ring, to justify their desire for power. Lots of people have done that. Lots of people would do that. But very few have been confronted by the power of the ring in its greatest magnitude and have rejected it. And Boromir did. Now that puts Boromir amidst very elevated company. Who has actually been tempted by the ring and turned it down? Galadriel? Gandalf? Arguably Elrond? possibly Aragorn himself. We can only speculate that Aragorn too has kind of felt the tug of, of the ring here in, in this company. But Boromir fell and then stood again. That is the victory. In the end, he dies not beneath the shadow, but in the light. Yes, terrible things are going to happen now because Boromir fell. But for him personally, he died a hero's death. And that's not about slaying the orcs. That's about ridding his heart of the taint of the ring itself by telling the truth now, by taking responsibility for it now. He is demonstrating to Aragorn that actually he is a great man. Actually, the blood of Numenor still flows in Gondor. Actually, he is a, a true man and neither thief nor tracker, as he said to Frodo last week. And this is the glory of Boromir. This is the redemption of Boromir. Literally and specifically, this is the redemption of Boromir. So what do we make of this turn? This narrative turn, I think, is actually very useful. And we did talk about this a little last time, that it is telling that The Fellowship of the Ring, as a book, ends with a chapter entitled The Breaking of the Fellowship, but does not end with the death of Boromir. 
because it is not Boromir's death that breaks the fellowship. It is Boromir's, I keep wanting to say betrayal, which I think it probably is in a immediate mundane kind of way. But of course, Boromir doesn't, uh, doesn't betray Frodo from nothing. He is corrupted by the ring. Boromir's fall here is the end of the fellowship. But in the end, as we begin the Two Towers, Boromir regains some of that glory. Boromir regains some of that, that strength, yeah. Interesting, uh, Isaac says, interesting how Faramir is lifted up as this great example, but given the same opportunity, makes the same choice as his brother. Yes, Boromir is... Hmm. I mean, Faramir doesn't fall in the first place, right? So Faramir is closer to Gandalf than he is to Galadriel. We can kind of chart that. Faramir, as far as we know, takes no action in pursuit of the ring, particularly not the way that Boromir takes action in pursuit of the ring. But yes, his ultimate rejection turns out that the men of Gondor are still possessed of, of a great strength. Be at peace, quotes, uh, be at peace, quotes Angela there, yes. Uh, yes, and Lynn says in the book, of course, the movie did change the story. Yes, absolutely. The movie changed the story. The movie puts Boromir's death at the end of the Fellowship of the Ring. And when that happened, many people came out and said, hey, what a great structural choice. What a great adaptive choice, Peter Jackson. Of course, you should put the most narratively dramatic part of this story in the end of the Fellowship of the Ring. And I understand that. The, the drama and immediacy of Boromir's death is undeniably powerful. But Tolkien knew what he was doing. He knows that the death of Boromir is actually a beat of hope. It's not a beat of defeat. Boromir on Amun-Han is the dark beat that concludes the Fellowship of the Ring. Now we're beginning again with the restoration of strength. And of course, we're going to be talking a lot about, uh, a lot about uh, restoration and strength and hope and all the great virtues as we move through the Two Towers. Pete says, Boromir tried to take the ring through what he thinks are good intentions, but he redeems himself through what he knows are good actions. That's very good, right? That, that's, gosh, that, what a beautiful way of putting that, because that ties us back to, to Galadriel and the notion of fighting the long defeat, right? There is virtue in the fight, as we discussed back when we were talking about Lothlorien. There is virtue to be found in resisting the shadow, even if in the end you fall to the shadow, even if in the end the shadow claims you and takes you and evil will have its way. Well, that doesn't matter because the fight is what matters. All that is left is to decide what to do with the time that is given us, as Gandalf said. Yeah, good. Boromir dying would have started two towers in a really weird place, says Becca. Absolutely, right? Like that, that decision too, that half of that decision, Yes, it would have been a very difficult place to to begin. I like to think that we would have begun with a, you know, slow motion montage of of Aragorn kind of gathering Boromir's belongings together and setting him out upon the lake, you know, kind of just casting his body into the falls of Raros as he does here. We're just going to let him go now, return him to the Anduin. In fact, let's uh let's push on here. Well, actually, before we get onto that, two quick things that we should that we should call out here. What does Aragorn mean when he says be at peace, Minas Tirith shall not fall? What is he doing there? Is he giving Boromir simply simple reassurance? Aragorn doesn't know that Minas Tirith shall not fall. What is he saying? This is the war against the Dark Lord, and as far as he knows, Sauron's minions now are in possession of the ring. There has never been a day as dark as this. This is about as bad as things can possibly get, and yet in this moment he says Minas Tirith shall not fall. Why? Is he seeking to reassure Boromir? Or is he moved by Boromir's strength? Is he now, this Dúnedain of the North, who has traveled far and who has been, let's not forget, 
a little dismissive, a little dubious of the remaining strength in Gondor? Is he now convinced? No, no. With men like Boromir, Minas Tirith shall never fall. Minas Tirith will endure. Minas Tirith will stand. Or is he giving a promise? By my strength, Boromir, yes, because you asked it of me in this moment, in this dire exigency, Boromir, I will go to Minas Tirith and I will ensure that it will not fall. I'm not sure. I like to think that it's parts of the latter too. I do not think that Aragorn is simply soothing Boromir here. No, 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 no. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. It's all okay. Don't worry about it. It's all okay. Frodo's fine. We've got the ring. Uh, Gandalf's going to fly in on an eagle any minute now. It's all going to be okay. Don't worry, Boromir. Be at peace. I think there is an element of that when he says, be at peace. But I think it's more powerful than that. Be at peace, Boromir. The strength of man endures and you have proven it. With men like you, Minas Tirith will not fall. Aragorn may in this moment believe it. But then we get the pivot away from that as Boromir dies. And, and yes, Boromir smiled. Tolkien is a master of these very short sentences. I was talking recently, if you've heard the uh, podcast series Storms on the Way, I was talking recently about Neil Gaiman's mastery of the short sentence, right? He will give us this incredibly rich and evocative language. He will give us very descriptive and almost impressionistic language, and then he will undercut it with a very simple account of what happened next. It will be brief, it will be terse, and it will be powerfully emotive. Well, here's Tolkien pulling exactly the same trick. Be at peace, Minas Tirith shall not fall. Boromir smiled. That is the last action of Boromir, because Boromir did not, as we'll see here, speak again. Alas, said Aragorn, thus passes the heir of Denethor, lord of the Tower of Guard. This is a bitter end. Now the company is all in ruin. It is I that have failed. Vain was Gandalf's trust in me. What shall I do now? Boromir has laid it on me to go to Minas Tirith, and my heart desires it. But where are the ring and the bearer? How shall I find them and save the quest from disaster? How shall you find them and save the quest from disaster, Aragorn? Is this related to your question earlier, of, of, of your, your lamenting earlier, that all that you have done has turned to woe and evil? Well, possibly. Let's bear this in mind as we move forward, because we're going to get another chance to discuss it. We're going to close out this three-beat here at the end of this chapter. Let's move on to what to do with the body of Boromir. Alas, said Legolas, coming to Aragorn's side, we have hunted and slain many orcs in the woods, but we, have, uh, but we should have been of more use here. We came when we heard the horn, but too late, it seems. I fear you have taken deadly hurt. Boromir is dead, said Aragorn. I am unscathed, for I was not here with him. He fell defending the hobbits while I was away upon the hill. The hobbits, cried Gimli. Where are they? Where is Frodo? I do not know, answered Aragorn wearily. Before he died, Boromir told me that the orcs had bound them. He did not think that they were dead. I sent him to follow Merry and Pippin, but I did not ask him if Frodo or Sam were with him, not until it was too late. All that I have done today has gone amiss. What is to be done now? First, we must tend the fallen, said Legolas. We cannot leave him lying like carrion among these foul orcs. But we must be swift, said Gimli. He would not wish us to linger. We must follow the orcs if there is any hope that any of our company are living prisoners. But we do not know whether the ring-bearer is with them or not, said Aragorn. Are we to abandon him? Must we not seek him first? An evil choice is now before us. Then let us do first what we must do, said Legolas. We have not the time or the tools to bury our comrade fitly, or to raise a mound over him, a cairn we might build. The labor would be hard and long. There are no stones that we can use nearer than the waterside, said Gimli. Then let us lay him in a boat with, with his weapons, and the weapons of his vanquished foes, said Aragorn. We will send him into the falls of Roros and give him to Anduin. 
The river of Gondor will take care at least that no evil creature dishonors his bones. Here we are, leaning into Norse myth, leaning into Anglo-Saxon myth. We're leaning into Beowulf here, you guys, by gathering together Boromir's weapons and, crucially, the weapons of his slain enemies and casting him out upon the river Anduin. Anduin will protect him. The river of Gondor will take care, at least, that no evil creature dishonors his bones. Yes, as, as Katie says, the professor of Anglo-Saxon gives him a stereotypical funeral. Yes, absolutely. And hey, if you like Tolkien's perspective on Anglo-Saxon culture, stick around, because we're going to be talking about the writers of Rohan a lot in the next few pages. And the writers of Rohan are, are the most quintessentially Anglo-Saxon culture that, that Tolkien writes within the pages of The Lord of the Rings. And personally... I adore them. I think it's very, very good. Aragorn seems like he's at the end of his rope, says Carolina. Yes. And this is, is fascinating. Um, Isaac asks, too, I wonder if Aragorn's promise to Boromir is the beginning of the decision to walk the paths of the dead. Interesting. Interesting. All of this, I think, all of these points of discussion kind of tie into the same question here, which is what is going on with Aragorn? We're accustomed, I think, particularly within the pages of the book, to thinking of Aragorn as... King Elisar. We're used to thinking of him as the returning king. He is, he's Aragorn, you guys. He's Strider. He always knows what to do. He knows his place in the world and he is, is ready to do what must be done. But here we see this profound doubt. Here in the shadow of Gandalf's passing, here in the, uh, weighed by the burden of leadership, pretty much for the first time, lest we forget. Aragorn has never really been in charge of people before. But here, He's in charge of the company. And all of his choices have turned to ruin, turned to catastrophe. And what are we seeing here? What are we seeing from Legolas in particular in this passage? Well, we're seeing a pushback against Aragorn, I think. First, we must tend the fallen, said Legolas. We cannot leave him lying like carrion among these foul orcs. So this is coming off of Aragorn saying, all that I've done today is gone amiss. What is to be done now? What the hell am I supposed to do? Maybe Boromir was talking about Merry and Pippin being taken by the orcs. Maybe he was talking about Frodo and Sam. I don't know where Frodo and Sam are. Sam was with me for a minute till he decided to use his head rather than his legs, I guess. And now I don't know where anyone is. What are we supposed to do? And Legolas says, well, first, we've got to take care of Boromir. First, we must take care of the body. Then we're spinning back into this again. We get this from, from Gimli, but we must be swift, said Gimli. He would not wish us to linger. We must follow the orcs if there is any hope that our company are living prisoners. Okay, Boromir wants us to pursue the hobbits. He wants us to go and capture them. Captured by orcs? Can you imagine a worse thing? And that's a terrible thing with a rich tradition in Tolkien's legendarium at this point, that we ourselves, as readers of The Lord of the Rings alone, are not yet familiar with it. But captured by orcs? Pretty bad, you guys and Aragorn is still spinning, but we do not know whether the ring bearer is with them or not. Are we to abandon him? Must we seek him first? An evil choice is now before us. Then let us do first what we must do, says Legolas. Hey, I know, this is a bad choice, but we do have action that we can take. We can do something now, which we must do, and which we ought to do. We must care for our departed comrade. We must take care of his body. We can't leave him here with this carrion, surrounded by the corpses of orcs. We can't leave him here as, as food for the beasts of the wild. We have to preserve his body. This is important, and this is the first thing that we must do, but Aragorn, I'm looking at you. This is the first thing that you must do. Why does this fall to Aragorn specifically, and why ultimately is Aragorn the one who decides what to do with Boromir's body? Well, because Aragorn's his king. And Aragorn's his leader, right? My brother, my captain, my king. One of 
my favorite adaptive choices in the Peter Jackson movies. I, I love the, the dialogue that is given to Boromir at, at the moment of his death. It's, ah, it touches my heart very, very powerfully every time I watch that sequence. But it falls to Aragorn. Because here, shrouded in doubt, shrouded in darkness, beneath the shadow, he's struggling. He doesn't see the path clearly. He does not have that discernment, which we have so long associated with the wise, right? Elrond has his, if I understand it right, all that I have heard, and Gandalf has, you know, chance of chance, you call it. There is a greater power here. And Aragorn himself has said, hey, Frodo, I understand. If, if my understanding is, is true, this is your choice. This is your call. Gandalf would have said the same thing, but now that the company has fallen, now that Aragorn has faced defeat, he is experiencing doubt. Will this lead him later into the paths of the dead? Yes, I think so. In part, yes. Will this lead him beneath a greater shadow, a personal shadow? Yes. It's not going to be as explicit, and it's certainly not going to be as, as focal as Aragorn's self-doubt within the movie. But the movies didn't generate that storyline from nothing. It's right here on the page in front of us. Yeah. Um, yes, Skipa, what a great pull. Legolas is calm, reminds me he is not young. He has probably seen war before. Yes, he absolutely has. Legolas, though, he is youthful in appearance. And certainly when you're watching the movies, it's easy to think of Legolas as being, you know, much younger than both Gimli and Aragorn. Legolas is by far the oldest of all of them. We don't know when Legolas was born, probably in the third age, right? Probably around this time, because it's after his, uh, his, uh, his people have decamped from Lothlorien to Mirkwood, right? It's after the founding of the Kingdom of Thranduil. But Legolas is probably 800 years old, something like that, something pretty significant. Anyway, he has been around, and in that time, he has seen the darkness on Mirkwood. He has seen his personal part of the world fall into shadow and shroud. He has, of course, there's every chance, every, every reason to believe that even if Legolas wasn't personally present at the Battle of the Five Armies, sorry, little dig at the movies there, if he wasn't personally present at the Battle of Five Armies in the shadow of Erebor back at the end of The Hobbit, that he knew about it, he knew people who died there, he definitely did, there's no question. The elves fell beneath the goblin blades that day, so he knows people who have died. He is by far the most experienced here, but he remembers what is most important and he keeps moving forward. Yeah. Let's uh, keep also keep moving forward, get to the site of the battle. This is the, the aftermath here, after we have set Boromir out to, to have his traditional, you know, Viking Anglo-Saxon uh, burial here. He has been returned to the Anduin. See, cried Aragorn, here we find tokens. He picked out from the pile of grim weapons, two knives, leaf-bladed, damasked in gold and red, and searching further, he found also the sheaths, black, set with small red gems. No orc tools, these, he said. They were born by the hobbits. Doubtless the orcs despoiled them, but feared to keep the knives, knowing them for what they are, work of Westerness, wound about with spells for the bane of Mordor. Well, now, if they still live, our friends are weaponless. I will take these things, hoping against hope to give them back. And I, said Legolas, will take all the arrows I can find, for my quiver is empty. He searched in the pile and on the ground about, and found not a few that were undamaged, and longer in the shaft than such arrows as the orcs were accustomed to use. He looked at them closely. And Aragorn looked on the slain, and he said... Here lie many that are not folk of Mordor. Some are from the north, from the misty mountains, if I know anything of orcs and their kinds, and here are others strange to me. Their gear is not after the manner of orcs at all. There were four goblin soldiers of greater stature, swart, slant-eyed, with thick legs and large hands. They were armed with short, broad-bladed swords, not with the curved scimitars usual with orcs, and they had bows of yew, in length and shape like the bows of man. 
Upon their shields they wore a strange device, a small white hand in the center of a black field. On the front of their iron helms was set an S rune, wrought of some white metal. I have not seen these tokens before, said Aragorn. What do they mean? S is for Sauron, said Gimli. That is easy to read. Nay, said Legolas, Sauron does not use the elf runes. Neither does he use his right name, nor permit it to be spelt or spoken, said Aragorn. And he does not use white. The orcs in the service of Barador use the sign of the red eye. He stood for a moment and thought, S is for Saruman, I guess, he said at length. There is evil afoot in Isengard, and the West is no longer safe. It is as Gandalf feared. By some means the traitor Saruman has had news of our journey. It is likely, too, that he knows of Gandalf's fall. Pursuers from Moria may have escaped the vigilance of Lorien, or they may have avoided that land and come to Isengard by other paths. Orcs travel fast. But Saruman has many ways of learning news. Do you remember the birds? Well, we have no time to ponder riddles, said Gimli. Let us bear Boromir away. But after that, we must guess the riddles if we are to choose our course rightly, answered Aragorn. Maybe there is no right choice, said Gimli. Maybe there is no right choice. The doom of dwarves always to question whether or not there is any path that can lead them out of this. So all of this, of course, is world building. This is going to be a part of the shift in tone and texture that we're going to get here in, at the very least, the first half of the Two Towers and then right at the end of the Two Towers 2. Orcs have been presented to us previously as a kind of monolithic culture. They are simply orcs. They are servants of Sauron. They are goblins in the Misty Mountains in The Hobbit, and they are orcs. Now, though you'll note here, one of the few uses of the word goblin here in The Lord of the Rings, there were four goblin soldiers of greater stature. Again, orcs and goblins, absolutely the same thing. But not all orcs are the same. There are orcs of Mordor. There are orcs of the Misty Mountains. And now... Well, now there is something new, carrying bows of yew, powerful, longer bows, akin to English longbows. And of course, if you aren't familiar with your medieval history, the English longbow was the definitive weapon of much of the Middle Ages. The English archers were among the most skilled in the world, and their bows were, were greater than the bows of other peoples. The, the use of, of archers in English warfare through the medieval period is... I mean, it's difficult to overemphasize how important it was. It's difficult to exaggerate how important it was. But what is important about the orcs here? Well, they're armed and armored like men. They're even bearing the, the device. A small white hand in the center of a black field on the front of their iron helms was set an S rune, wrought of some white metal. Yes, we're using white here. We're using runes here, elvish runes, certainly by Legolas's account. Something here is different. There is a new foe among us. Longbow rocks, says Angela Lurie. Yes, Agincourt calls out John. Yes, absolutely, right? Like the definitive proof of... Uh the definitive proof of, uh, of English um, ranged superiority there, yes. So if the orcs had been created from stone, says Lynn, maybe the differences come from the different kinds of stone used. Gosh, you know, I'd never thought of that, but I like that quite a lot. That's really rather beautiful, isn't it? That's the idea that they are, are wrought of stone. That is to say that orcs are created and empowered in a similar manner to the dwarves rather than being corrupted elves. And for those of you who are joining me partway through this series, we should say that there is no origin story for the orcs. That is to say there is no definitive canon origin story for the orcs. Tolkien changed his mind through his entire career. Sometimes they were crafted from stone. Sometimes they were corrupted elves. Sometimes corrupted men from the east. We just don't 
No. One of the most interesting things, I mentioned right back at the beginning of today's session about the video game Middle-earth uh, Shadows of Mordor, one of the most interesting things about that is that there's a line in that game that very quietly canonizes the idea that orcs are corrupted elves, which is profoundly the wrong choice for that game. Like, profoundly the wrong choice for a game in which your protagonist murders literally thousands of orcs in, in the, the, the movement of the game. One of the reasons that we like the idea that orcs were created from stone or were created from the earth is that they aren't real. They actually are just evil. They actually are just tools of Sauron. They're not a people unto themselves. If they're corrupted elves, then we have to question, you know, our, our response to them. Um, or at least discuss the, the philosophical response. Yeah, yeah. Good, good. Maybe orcs come from all those places, says Isaac. An orc can come from anything that is corrupted. Again, an interesting idea. We're going to have the opportunity to talk about this when we get to Isengard, the pits of Isengard. John says Tolkien says that the orcs were made in mockery of the elves, but he doesn't say how. Yeah, exactly. Is it corrupted earth? Are they like, I suppose the closest thing would be, you know, golems of D&D &D origin and derivation rather than, you know, a uh, uh, Jewish derivation there or more specifically D&D &D derivation? Um, possibly, possibly. We just don't have enough information to speculate. Yeah, good. Um, okay, so now we have our information. We know that the orcs have despoiled the blades of the, Hobbit. we of the hobbits. We now know that the hobbits are, are uh, unarmed and we know we can begin to suspect that only two of the hobbits were taken. There are two blades here, two scabbards found behind, two of the hobbits were taken. Now we're going to push into the song. Of course, here I am, pressed for time, and we're going to spend three slides talking about the song, because the song is just fantastic. For a while, the three companions remained silent. This is after setting Boromir out upon the lake. Then Aragorn spoke. They will look for him from the White Tower, he said but he will not return from mountain or from sea. Then slowly he began to sing. Through Rohan, over fen and field where the long grass grows, the west wind comes walking, and about the walls it goes. What news from the west, a wandering wind, do you bring to me tonight? Have you seen Boromir the tall by moon or by starlight? I saw him ride over seven streams, over waters wide and grey. I saw him walk in empty lands until he passed away. Into the shadows of the north I saw him then no more. The north, may, excuse me, the north wind may have heard the horn of the son of Denethor. O Boromir, from the high walls westward I looked afar. But you came not from the empty lands where no man are. A little spontaneous eulogy here for Boromir. And it's interesting that Aragorn wraps this eulogy for Boromir, this reflection on Boromir's life and on Boromir's absence in particular. He wraps it in a narrative conceit, which is genuinely fascinating, actually, because he's not singing as Aragorn here. What is the, the mode of address that we see here in this poem? Who is singing this song? Well, it's the man of Minas Tirith. It's a representation of Minas Tirith itself. They will look for him from the White Tower, he said, but he will not return from mountain or from sea. This is not Aragorn and his companions singing for Boromir. This is Minas Tirith singing for Boromir. Through Rohan over fen, fen and field where the long grass grows, the west wind comes walking, and about the walls it goes. The west wind is the first wind that we introduce here. Okay, from the west, 
O wind, tell me news of Boromir the Tall. What have you heard of Boromir? Where is he? He went passing. I, I, I saw him ride over seven streams, over waters wide and gray. I saw him walk in empty lands until he passed away into the shadows of the north. I saw him then no more. The north wind may have heard the horn of the son of Denethor. Why the west wind? Well, because Boromir left Minas Tirith and went west. That's the route that he took up to, up to Rivendell. So that's where we begin, though, of course, the West is very significant in the works of Tolkien. The West is where hope resides, where goodness resides, where virtue resides. And you'll remember, too, this is not the first time that we've talked about a West Wind. Do you remember the, the transcendent wind of the dwarves? Do you remember the, the, the wind that passes from the West and passes over the Shire and the settled lands west of the Misty Mountains, then over the mountains themselves, then over the, the savage lands to the east, over Mirkwood, all the way to Erebor, and then ascends into the heavens above Erebor? You remember that, that wind from the, the, the dwarves' song back in the pages of The Hobbit? Well, here again, this is the same West Wind. But we don't look as far or take it as far as the dwarves did. Does this wind spring from Valinor? Well, no. I mean, there's no indication here that it does. There's no indication here that it should. And that's fascinating because it means that we are, A, bounded by Middle-earth here. We're not including all of Arda in our understanding of, of this wind, of this response to Boromir's absence and of Boromir's loss. We're talking about Middle-earth, and we're talking about Middle-earth from the perspective of man, from the perspective of humankind here. The elves would sing a very different song. The dwarves would sing a very different song. But Aragorn here is firmly in the register of the man of Gondor. I saw, uh, have you seen Boromir the Tall by Moon or by Starlight? First off, I mean, Moon and Starlight, Elven, yes, but not strictly Elven, not just Elven. The wind passes beneath the moon and beneath the stars. Have you seen Boromir the Tall? Echoing, of course, Elendil the Tall. Aragorn here folding in this idea of Boromir's Numenorean descent. He came from the West, and now we're questioning, or, or <laughs> the men of Numenor came originally from the West, and now Boromir has passed into the West, so we're questioning the West Wind. No, no, says the West Wind. And you can see here, you can... Uh, it, it, it can be difficult to parse, but there are three voices here. The first, what news from the West, a wandering wind do you bring to me tonight? Have you seen Boromir the Tall by moon or by starlight? That's the first voice. That is the voice of Minas Tirith, if you like. Then the response, I saw him ride over seven streams, over waters wide and gray. I saw him walk in empty lands until he passed away into the shadows of the north. I saw him then no more. The north wind may have heard the horn of the son of Denethor, says the West Wing. The West Wing, excuse me, the West Wind. Cool, thanks, West Wind. Excellent, I'll check with the North Wind. Oh, Boromir, from the high walls westward, I looked afar, but you came not from the empty lands where no man are. You did not come from the West, Boromir. You have not returned to us. Then we segue to Legolas's verse. Legolas picks up the song here. From the mouths of the sea, the south wind flies. From the sandhills and the stones, the wailing of the gulls it bears, and at the gate it moans. What news from the south, O sighing wind, did you bring to me at eve? Where now is Boromir the fair? He tarries, and I grieve. Ask not of me where he doth dwell. So many bones there lie on the white shores and the dark shores under the stormy sky. So many have passed down Anduin to find the flowing sea. Ask of the north wind news of them the north wind sends to me. O Boromir, beyond the gate the, south, the, the seaward road runs south. But you came not with the wailing gulls from the grey sea's mouth. So Legolas, rather than looking to the north wind, looks instead to the south. Why the south? Well, because, well, there are two reasons. The first being, 
that the Anduin itself is flowing south, of course. The Anduin is going to flow out into the Great Sea. That is the course that Boromir's body is going to take. He is going to flow south. If he makes it past the falls of Raros, he's going to flow out into the sea. But metaphorically, the south is much more important because in this part of the world, on the eastern side of the Misty Mountains, the elves who travel into the west, the elves who go to the undying lands, go south. Remember, we talked about this with uh, with um, Nimrodal. We talked about this with with uh, the, the passing of the elves from Lothlorien south and to take ship from there into, into the west. So Legolas is clearly thinking of that. What news from the south, O sighing wind, do you bring to me at eve? Where now is Boromir the fair? He tarries and I grieve. Southern wind, have you heard anything? And the southern wind replies, Ask not of me where he doth dwell. So many bones there lie on the white shores and the dark shores under the stormy sky. So many have passed down Anduin to find the flowing sea. Ask of the north wind news of them. The north wind sends to me. I don't know. Voice coming from the south. I have not seen Boromir. There are so many bones here. There are so many corpses. There are so many bodies here littering the shores, the, the white shores and the dark shores beneath the stormy sky to the south. O oh, Boromir, beyond the gate, the seaward road runs south, but you came not with the wailing gulls from the grey sea's mouth. Boromir will not return from this last journey. And then we return to Aragorn. Um, oh, Shane asks, is the song more in the style of men or elves? Because Legolas does human poetry rather well. And Seastar notes, Legolas is already thinking about the sea. Poor guy. Yes, he is thinking about the sea, but he's not thinking about, he doesn't seem to be, actually, let me, let me return here in this slide, right? From the mouths of the sea, the south wind flies, and the sandhills and the stones, the wailing of the gulls it bears, and the gate it moans. This is absolutely in, in the register of man. This is not in the elven register. The sea in the elven register is something very different. This, you'll, you'll remember, you know, Frodo's dreams of the sound of the sea, Frodo's dreams of the sight of the sea now. When elves sing of the sea, they're singing really about Valinor. They're singing really about the passage from Middle-earth into something else. For an elf, the journey to the sea or the journey across the sea, the journey into the sea, if you like, is sad, yes, but also inevitable. But we're not singing about an elven passage into the sea here. We're singing about the passage of man into the sea because elves would not return from that journey. And of course, Boromir is not going to return from that journey either, but that's kind of the point that he's establishing here. The, Boromir's journey to the sea is not the elven tragic journey to the sea. It is not the, the giving up of life in Middle-earth. It's not the passing away from the world. It's not sailing, sailing, sailing. It's something far more mundane, but also hopeful. Remember, as Legolas is thinking of this, it may seem a little morbid that Legolas is singing, hey, Boromir's body, where are you at? What's, what's up with you, Boromir's body? And the Southwind is saying, there are so many bones. I can't even tell you which of these is Boromir's. And the conclusion is that it doesn't matter. The reason I think that Legolas is in part, and that, okay, the reason that specifically Legolas is specifically singing about the Southwind and specifically singing about Boromir's body is that Boromir's body is not Boromir. Boromir's spirit, Boromir's soul, has done that thing which no elf has ever done. It has left the world behind. Boromir has gone on to his final reward, which is in part, I think, at least referential to the victory that Aragorn was describing earlier. Legolas will never leave this world. The souls of elves do not depart. They do not go to their final reward. They do not go to heaven. They are not unified with Iluvatar in whatever sense you want to kind of distinguish that, that unification. But the souls of man 
do. The souls of men do leave the world behind. That is their great gift. They are not immortal, but when they leave, they go to where they are intended to be. So this is, in a sense, we can lament the fall of Boromir, but for Boromir, it's actually a good thing. That's why I think Legolas is singing about his body rather than Aragorn singing about his body. Yeah. Um, Oh, good. We're talking about the comparison here. Interesting that Legolas was too sad to tell what the elves were singing of Gandalf, but he'll gladly whip up a song about Boromir. Well, again, right? I think this is this is arguably the same thing. I don't know what Legolas understands about Gandalf. I don't know if... Does Legolas think that Gandalf is a man? Because Gandalf is not a man. He is incarnate, but we genuinely don't know what happens to Gandalf's soul after he dies. Like, we don't know. We don't know if he's going to depart the world as men do, or if he's going to remain in the world as elves do, as, as basically everyone else does. And of course, we still don't know about dwarves, and we still don't know about hobbits either. Okay, I've got to keep, keep pushing on here, yeah. Um, Jared asks, when elves are slain or die, do they just cease to exist? I've been wondering about this and haven't heard any kind of definitive answer. Their bodies cease, I mean, their bodies decompose as they do. The elven souls go to the halls of Mandos beneath the Undying Lands. There are basically, yeah, um, basically there is a kind of, oh, I'm trying to think of a, a, a religious metaphor that isn't, you know, completely inappropriate. You know, the, the, there is no analogy here, so we're, we're relying on applicability here. But they go to the halls of Mandos. They go to these halls where they wait for the end of the world, for the remaking of the world. And sometimes, sometimes, but rarely, an elven soul can depart the halls of Mandos and return to the living world. That has happened but rarely. But they are still within the world, not within the geographical world, because Valinor and the Undying Lands, ever since the cracking of the earth and the sinking of Numenor, the Undying Lands are not physically upon Arda anymore. You have to take this very specific straight road into the west, which kind of takes you into the realm of fairy, essentially. But the realm of fairy, the, the Undying Lands here, are still connected to Arda, thus elves don't ever leave. Dwarves believe, too, that when they die, they will go to, to halls, the halls, some halls, different halls, who can say? They will go and, and be in their place until they are needed by Aule to rebuild the world after the final battle, yeah. Yeah, kind of like the land of shades in Greek myths. Yes, much more like um, much more like Hades than any kind of Judeo-Christian concept of hell, right? Uh, much more like this idea that no, no, it's a place. It's just beneath the earth. That's that's kind of where you go. And but without the torment and the torture, it is more. It's not purgatorial because no one here is being you know tested and purged. No one is being cleansed by their time in the halls of Mandos. It is just a place where you go after you die. That is where the spirit resides. And yes, as Diana says, they do reincarnate. Yes, though inconsistently. And Tolkien's approach to how often they reincarnate, also inconsistent. Yes, good. Okay. All right, we're going to wrap this up because I, I, gosh, I have so much left to cover. Let's talk about the third, uh, the third stanza here. From the gate of kings, the north wind rides and past the roaring falls and clear and cold about the tower, its loud horn calls. What news of the north, O mighty wind, do you bring to me today? What news of Boromir the bold, for he is long away? Beneath Amonhan I heard his cry. There many foes he fought, his cloven shield, his broken sword, they to the water brought, his head so proud, his face so fair, his limbs they laid to rest, and Roros, golden Roros falls, bore him upon its breast. O Boromir, the tower of guard shall ever northward gaze, to Roros, golden Roros falls, until the end of days. The north wind has the answer from the gate of kings from the argonauts right from the the paired statues of the numenorean kings from the gate of kings the north wind rides and past the roaring falls so we're already introducing the idea of raros here this is geographically the the north wind is coming down from the north and clear and cold about the tower its loud horn calls 
so we ask it, too, as we have asked the previous winds. What news from the north, O mighty wind, do you bring to me today? What news of Boromir the bold, for he is long away? So we've had Boromir the tall and Boromir the fair, and now Boromir the bold, for he is long away. And the north wind has the answer. The north wind knows what happened to Boromir. Beneath Amonhen I heard his cry. There many foes he fought. His cloven shield, his broken sword, they to the water brought. They Aragorn, Legolas, Gimli, they to the water brought, his head so proud, his face so fair, his limbs they laid to rest, and Roros, golden Roros Falls, bore him upon its breast. It's just telling the story. This is what happened. And you'll note, too, that before we get this song, we get the description of uh, of the side of Tolbrandir in the middle of the river, Tolbrandir being the, the, the rocky promontory, the island in the middle of the river that, that cleaves the river in two before it forms again and plunges down into the falls of Roros. We get this description of Tolbrandir gleaming in the afternoon sunlight like gold, and that a, a gold mist is atop the falls of Roros from, from Aragorn's perspective here. And then Oboromir, the tower of guard shall ever northward gaze, to Raros, Golden Raros Falls, until the end of days. We're going to be looking north, Boromir, in your memory and in your remembrance. But note the permanence of this. The Tower of Guard, Minas Tirith, the Tower of Guard shall ever northward gaze until the end of days. It looks as though Aragorn believed what he said to Boromir. Minas Tirith shall not fall. Here, as he's singing for Boromir, he notes that Minas Tirith will endure, and not for a while, not while Minas Tirith stands and true men guard the boundary of Mordor. No. Minas Tirith shall stand. The Tower of Guard shall ever northward gaze until the end of days. And there's the sense there that Minas Tirith shall endure because of Boromir, because of the blood of true man, because Gondor still stands strong. It's really beautiful. Shane says, I'm not crying. It's golden waterfall in my eyes. Yes, good, good. <laughs> okay, gosh, we really must keep going. You left the east wind to me, said Gimli, but I will say naught of it. That is as it should be, said Aragorn. In Minas Tirith, they endure the east wind, but they do not ask it for tidings. But now Boromir has taken his road, and we must make haste to choose our own. He surveyed the green lawn quickly but thoroughly, stooping often to the earth. No orcs have been on this ground, he said, otherwise nothing can be made out for certain. All our footprints are here, crossing and recrossing. I cannot tell whether any of the hobbits have come back since the search for Frodo began. He returned to the bank, close to where the rill from the spring trickled out into the river. There are some clear prints here, he said. A hobbit waded out into the water and back, but I cannot say how long ago. How then do you read this riddle? asked Gimli. Gimli there, tying back to the idea of riddles and the answer to riddles, that this is a mystery that they are solving, and I'm kind of into CSI Parth Galen here, I've got to tell you. Aragorn did not answer at once, but went back to the camping place and looked at the baggage. Two bags are missing, he said, and one is certainly Sam's. It was rather large and heavy. This, then, is the answer. Frodo has gone by boat, and his servant has gone with him. Frodo must have returned while we were all away. I met Sam going up the hill and told him to follow me, but plainly he did not do so. He guessed his master's mind and came back here before Frodo had gone. He did not find it easy to leave Sam behind. If all of Aragorn's choices have gone awry today, all of his discernment, all of his perception is right on the money. Aragorn, like Sam in the last chapter, batting a thousand here. Yes, that is exactly what happened. I love the detail too. Two packs are missing, he said. One is certainly Sam's. It was rather large and heavy. This is Aragorn saying this. Aragorn, who stands six feet and six inches tall, and he's noting how big and heavy Sam's pack is. 
Well, of course, because Sam is carrying what? The weight of, of three other packs, do we think? Sam is just trudging along stalwart in the service of his master. It's just, just perfect. Yes. <laughs> yes, Angela notes, you leave the east wind to me and I say none of it. Beautiful. Yeah, I love it. I love Gimli's response here. You left the east wind to me, but I will say not of it. Good, good. All right. Last slide for this chapter, Aragorn's choice. Let me think, said Aragorn, and now may I make the right choice and change the evil fate of this unhappy day. He stood silent for a moment. I will follow the orcs, he said at last. I would have guided Frodo to Mordor and gone with him to the end, but if I seek him now in the wilderness, I must abandon the captives to torment and death. My heart speaks clearly at last. The fate of the bearer is in my hands no longer. The company has played its part. Yet we that remain cannot forsake our companions while we have strength left. Come, we will go now. Leave all that can be spared behind. We will press on by day and dark. Press on by day and dark is a great poetic turn of phrase right at this point. So Aragorn has made his decision at last. Frodo has made his choice. And ultimately, look how we've come full circle. Aragorn said to him when we arrived at Parthgallon, Frodo, this is your choice to make. I have my preference. I know what I would do. And I would, by the way, go with you, Frodo. Or I guess he didn't say that to Frodo, but he did say that to Legolas and Gimli. I would go with you. But now the choice has been made. Frodo has ultimately made the choice. So for all of this, if we look at the entire Parthgallon misadventure here, you know, if we look at everything surrounding basically from the Argonauts onward, right? If we look at this entire sequence of events, what do we see? Well, we see this recurring element of, of good fortune, of good grace. But Aragorn isn't understanding it. Now may I make a right choice and change the evil fate of this unhappy day. The evil fate of this unhappy day? Yes, Aragorn. Terrible things have happened. But ultimately, it will all turn to the good. Ultimately, each of these evil things will be necessary. Aragorn is not, in this moment, faithful. He is not in this moment possessed of, of sufficient wisdom to trust in the course of events. He was not responsible for these events. None of these events have transpired because of choices that Aragorn made. And the choices that he did make were utterly well-intentioned. He made the best choices that he was equipped to make. And terrible things have happened. Boromir has fallen. Merry and Pippin have been taken. Frodo and Sam are now on their own, followed by Gollum. You guys, let's not forget Gollum. But none of that, in the end, will be disastrous. Evil things are twisted and subverted to good effect, to good consequence. That's part of our understanding of the way the world works. There is nothing here that is not playing out as it ought to have played out. But Aragorn is still lacking the, the, the insight, the wisdom to see that clearly. Yes, it could have been different, says Katie, but it couldn't have been better. Yes, absolutely. Good. Yes, yes. Vigo Aragorn, I would have gone with you to the end. Heartbreaking. I know, I know. Again, all of this in the movie, like, I, I get the adaptive choice to move Boromir's death back. That makes a lot of sense to me. But all of this, very, very strong. I'm, I'm a big fan. Yeah. And Skipa says it was always going to play out this way. Frodo was always going to leave the Fellowship, knowing from the beginning it was his job to destroy the ring. You're absolutely right. Um, but also here, we see something else. We see... Aragorn's commitment to his people, to his fellowship. He's already told us what he wants to do. Boromir has laid it upon me that I must go to Minas Tirith, and my heart guides me so. He wants to go to Minas Tirith. That's what's next for him. But he's not going to. He's going to 
pretty starkly turn away from Minas Tirith, in fact, and not pursue that road. Instead, he's going to pursue the hobbits. He's going to, he's going to fulfill his obligation to his company, to his people. And as a king, that's a very powerful thing. Let's move on. Looking south to Gondor. Here we are in chapter two, The Riders of Rohan. I'm almost certainly not going to make it through all my slides, but we're going to try and get at least to Eomer. Here we go. Swiftly now, the pursuers turned and followed the new path. As if fresh from a night's rest, they sprang from stone to stone. Excuse me. At last, they reached the crest of the grey hill, and a sudden breeze blew in their hair and stirred their cloaks, the chill wind of dawn. Turning back, they saw across the river the far hills kindled. Day leapt into the sky. The red rim of the sun rose over the shoulders of the dark land. Before them in the west, the world lay still, formless and grey. But even as they looked, the shadows of night melted. The colours of the waking earth returned. Green flowed over the wide meads of Rohan. The white mist shimmered in the water veils, and far off to the left, thirty leagues or more, blue and purple stood the white mountains, rising into peaks of jet tipped with glimmering snows, flushed with the rose of morning. Gondor! Gondor! cried Aragorn. Would that I looked on you again in a happier hour. Not yet does my road lie southward to your bright streams. Gondor, Gondor, between the mountains and the sea, west wind blew there, the light upon the silver tree fell like bright rain in gardens of the kings of old. O proud walls, white towers, O winged crown and throne of gold, O Gondor, Gondor, shall men behold the silver tree, or west wind blow again between the mountains and the sea. Crying out for... Yes, yes. <laughs> he has a duty of care, says Skipa, beautifully encapsulating uh, Aragorn's purpose here. Aragorn looking south to Gondor and again betraying his heart. He longs for Gondor. He yearns for Gondor, specifically for the Tower of Guard, for Minas Tirith. He wants to be there, but now he plunges westward into Rohan. And of course, here we see the shadow fading away, but the shadow is not yet done. Let's look at how we rest at dusk. At dusk they halted again. Now twice twelve leagues they had passed over the plains of Rohan, and the walls of the Emin Mole were lost in the shadows of the east. The young moon was glimmering in a misty sky, but it gave small light, and the stars were veiled. Now do I most grudge a time of rest or any halt in our chase, said Legolas. The orcs have run before us as if the very whips of Sauron were behind them. I fear they have already reached the forest and the dark hills, and even now are passing into the shadows of the trees." Gimli ground his teeth. This is a bitter end to our hope and to all our toil, he said. To hope, maybe, but not to toil, said Aragorn. We shall not turn back here, yet I am weary. He gazed back along the way that they had come toward the night gathering in the east. There is something strange at work in this land. I distrust the silence. I distrust even the pale moon. The stars are faint, and I am weary as I have seldom been before, weary as no ranger should be with a clear trail with a clear trail to follow. There is some will that lends speed to our foes and sets an unseen barrier before us, a weariness that is in the heart more than in the limb. Truly, said Legolas, that I have known since first we came down from the Ammon Mole, for the will is not behind us, but before us. He pointed away over the land of Rohan into the darkling west under the sickle moon. Saruman, muttered Aragorn, but he shall not turn us back. Halt we must once more, for see, even the moon is falling into gathering cloud, but north lies our road between down and fan when day returns. Yes, we quote Angela here in the Crowdcast chat, quotes, yet I am weary, I distrust the silence. And we get this beautiful breakdown of what it is that they are facing. Truly, said Legolas, that I've known since we came down from the Emin Mool, for the will is not behind us, but before us. This is not the shadow 
of Saruman. This is not the shadow, capital T, capital S. This is the shadow of Saruman. This is the fell influence of Saruman, a weariness that is in the heart more than in the limb. What has fallen on Aragorn? What is besieging Aragorn right now? It is the influence of Saruman. What is the nature of that influence? What is the the magic? The Tolkien would hate the magic. What is the enchantment? What is the dwimmer, as Aramur will tell us in a few pages' time? What is the the presence, the, the force that Saruman has set forth upon this land? Well, it is a darkness. It is a weariness. It is an ending of hope. And in that way, it is completely compatible with the influence of evil as we've seen it elsewhere in the book. And as we will see it again. What do we feel from the Nazgul? We feel cold, bitter cold and hopelessness. We are fatigued. We are made weary by the presence of the Nazgul. And the counterpoint? What are we made to feel by the presence of Elves, whether that's in, in Rivendell or in Holland or in Lothlorien, well, hope and brightness and courage and energy were made to move by the presence of elves. And again, we're contrasting the light and hope and dark and hopelessness. This is a dichotomy that we will face again and again and again, particularly in the pages of the Two Towers. But the light persists. The light endures, even in the face of shadow. Aragorn here can acknowledge it. Legolas, too, and Gimli, to perhaps a lesser extent. Gimli is perhaps a little less sensitive. He seems a little more easily swayed. This is a bitter end to our hope and to all our toil, he says. <laughs> like, ah, great. Now we're just screwed. That's, that's awesome. Now do I most have a grudge of time of uh, most grudge a time of rest or any halt in our chases, Legolas? The orcs have run before us as if the very whips of Sauron were behind them. Yes, I mean, metaphorically, that's true. But it's not the whip of Sauron behind them that is driving the orcs forward. It is the shadow before them. They are gaining strength as they get closer to the forest, yes, but closer to Isengard, closer to the Tower of Orthanc, closer to the influence of Saruman. Here, he is evidently corrupting the land. And this is one of the first perspectives that we get on the corruption of a land, on the corruption of a region by a shadow, by the shadow. Why is Mordor what Mordor is? Because the shadow has fallen on it. It is a land of hopelessness to those who are possessed of or in service to the light, whatever that means. You know, to, to men of good spirit and good faith, Mordor is a land of hopelessness. Gondor stands as a light. Rivendell stands as a light. Lothlorien stands as a light. The Shire stands as a light. There, people of good spirit and good virtue are empowered. They are made better than they were. They are made more hopeful than they were. But here, when the shadow has fallen over the land, it takes a great deal of will to persist, to resist that fell influence. Yeah. Sam, as, as Seastar says here, Sam will ultimately be an exceptional example of perseverance without hope. Yes, without hope, but with something else, something very, very valuable. And it's not dissimilar to the thing that is driving Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli onward here. And I'm not being, I was going to say I'm not being deliberately oblique. That's an outright lie, you guys. I am being deliberately oblique because we're going to talk about that when we get to it. Yes, good. I wonder if it's an apathy cast over the populace so they can be easily conquered, says Skipa. Yes, oh, and, and Rayla Lynn calls out beautifully, reminds me of Dementors. Of course, yes, yes, it is the draining of hope. It is the draining of, of light and of good memory and of camaraderie and kinship. Hope here is being represented as 
in a sense, the core virtue, right? That, that all other virtues spring from hope. Why do we form communities? Why do we form relationships? Why do we serve? Why do we, why do we offer you know, devotion and dedication? Why do we build? Well, we do all of that in hope. We do it all from hope. Hope is the foundational virtue within Tolkien's worldview here, arguably. We'll get to that. I, I, I don't think necessarily that it is a... Huh. Okay, let me put it this way. I do not think that Saruman has cast a spell upon this land to drain this land of hope. I think it is much more connected to the presence of, Sar of Saruman than that. I think it is, as the shadow spreads, the, thus hope dies. As hope dies, thus the shadow spreads. As the light dims, the darkness becomes more powerful. And I think that we've seen some evidence of that in Mirkwood, back in the pages of The Hobbit, and certainly the vague accounts that we've had of that. We've certainly seen that in Moria too, right? The darkness of Moria, the way that we talked about the two kinds of darkness in Moria. There's, gosh, just, just a ton, just a ton to get to. But yes, you're absolutely right. The corruption, the, the, the shadow is spreading. Let's move on to our horsemen. There are horsemen coming. We'll do two more slides and then we'll wrap that up and then we'll have our conversation, I guess, with, uh, with Eomer uh, next week when we, get to, uh, when we get to conclude this week's reading. Uh, this is from Legolas. What do, you know, what do you know of these horsemen, Aragorn, he said. Do we sit here waiting for sudden death? I've been among them, answered Aragorn. They are proud and willful, but they are true-hearted, generous in thought and deed, bold, but not cruel, wise, but unlearned, writing no books but singing many songs after the manner of the children of men before the dark years. But I do not know what has happened here of late, nor in what mind the Rohirrim may, be now, uh, may now be between the traitor Saruman and the threat of Sauron. They have long been friends of the people of Gondor, though they are not akin to them. It was in forgotten years long ago that Eorl, Eorl the Young brought them out of the north, and their kinship is rather with the bardings of Dale and with the Bjornings of the Wood, among whom may still be seen many men tall and fair, as are the riders of Rohan. At least, they will not love the orcs. But Gandalf spoke of a rumor that they paid tribute to Mordor, said Gimli. I believe it no more than did Boromir, answered Aragorn. You will soon learn the truth, said Legolas. Already they approach. Who are the writers of Rohan? Who are the Rohirrim? Who are these men? Well, we get a brief account here. They have long been friends with the people of Gondor, though they are not akin to them. It was in forgotten years long ago that Eorl the... Eorl, excuse me, that's a very difficult word to pronounce. Eorl the Young brought them out of the north, and their kinship is rather with the Bardings of Dale and with the Bjornings of the Wood. These are Northmen. These are men of the north, not of Arnor, which is on the western side of the Misty Mountains, but rather of, of the north here on the eastern side of the Misty Mountains. The Bjornings of Bjorn, men, some of whom can shapeshift, very Anglo-Saxon tradition there, and the Bardlings of Dale, you know, the, the men of, of, of Dale and, and, um, and of, of that area, you know, the, the, um, the new alliance there between Erebor and Dale and Thranduil's kingdom in, in Mirkwood. But Rohan was not founded, actually, in the empty mists of time. It was founded only 500 years ago, five centuries ago. It was founded when the men of Gondor sent an appeal to Errol the Young in the far north, and as a reward for their help, the men of the north came down to help Gondor fight against, uh, to fight against Mordor. They came down, they helped out, and as a reward, they were granted this strip of land, the Gondorian realm of Kalanarthon, which they renamed 
Rohan. We're going to talk about the name Rohan in just a minute. Yes. Writers of Rohan, and we find out that Gandalf is a horse thief. Shock. Yes. Yeah, it's true. Um, I only just realized, said Fina, that we're already in a chapter that I didn't manage to read for today. Gosh, I'm tired. Oh, I'm so sorry, Fina. Yeah, this is this is a long chapter. I'll say that. The, the first one was very short, but yes, yes. Oh, good. And Seastar says, we skipped. Not lightly did the leaves of Lorien fall. I've read a Lord of the Rings parody that turned this line into Hobbits just don't throw away good bling, which I also like quite a lot. Not lightly did the leaves of Lorien fall. By the way, we're talking about the little uh, the cloak clasps, the little brooches that were given to to Mary and to Pippin. Not lightly did they fall. Instead, they must have been unbuckled. And I love that line. It's a beautiful, beautiful line. Yes. Good. Good. Okay. Let's get on to Aomer. Who are you? And what are you doing in this land? Said the writer, using the common speech of the West in manner and tone like to the speech of Boromir, man of Gondor. I am called Strider, answered Aragorn. I came out of the north. I am hunting orcs. The rider leapt from his horse. Giving his spear to another who rode up and dismounted at his side, he drew his sword and stood face to face with Aragorn, surveying him keenly and not without wonder. At length, he spoke again. At first, I thought that you yourselves were orcs, he said, but now I see that it is not so. Indeed, you know little of orcs if you go hunting them in this fashion. They were swift and well-armed, and they were many. You would have changed from hunters to prey if ever you had overtaken them. But there is something strange about you, Strider. He bent his clear, bright eyes again upon the ranger. That is no name for a man that you give. And strange, too, is your raiment. Have you sprung out of the grass? How did you escape our sight? Are you elvish folk? No, said Aragorn. Only one of us is an elf, Legolas from the woodland realm in distant Mirkwood. But we have passed through Lothlorien, and the gifts and favor of the lady go with us. The rider looked at them with renewed wonder, but his eyes hardened. Then there is a lady in the golden wood, as old tales tell, he said. Few escape her nets, they say. These are strange days. But if you have her favor, then you are also net weavers and sorcerers, maybe. He turned a cold glance suddenly upon Legolas and Gimli. Why do you not speak, silent ones? he demanded. Gimli rose and planted his feet firmly apart. His hand gripped the handle of his axe, and his dark eyes flashed. Give me your name, horse master, and I will give you mine and more besides, he said. As for that, said the rider, staring down at the dwarf, the stranger should declare himself first. Yet I am named Eomer, son of Emund, and am called the third marshal of Riddermark. Then Eomer, son of Eomund, third marshal of Riddermark, let Gimli the dwarf's glowing son warn you against foolish words. You speak evil of that which is fair beyond the reach of your thought, and only little wit can, ex can excuse you. Amor's eyes blazed, and the men of Rohan murmured angrily and closed in, advancing their spears. I would cut off your head, beard, and all, Master Dwarf, if it stood but a little higher from the ground, said Aomer. He stands not alone, said Legolas, bending his bow and fitting an arrow with hands that moved quicker than sight. You would die before your stroke fell. Hey, Aomer, how's it going? What's up? What's up, writers of Rohan? What a great introduction you get. Suspicious of Strider, suspicious of Lothlorien, suspicious of the Lady of the Woods, suspicious of dwarves and of elves, suspicious, hey, of everyone. Who are you and what are you doing in this land, said the writer, using the common speech of the West in manner and tone like to the speech of Boromir, man of Gondor. The Rohirrim have their own language. Rohirric is not technically the canon word for it. 
Tolkien never gave us a word for, for what the speech of the Rohirrim is. So uh, I wrote it down, actually, because I looked up. Robert Foster, the Tolkien scholar, uh, coined the term Rohirric both to describe the language of the Rohirrim and the uh, to give us an adjectival form of, of Rohirrim. This is Rohirric culture, if you like, and I like that very much. So I'm going to use that, even though that isn't canonically used in the books. Let's talk a little about uh, about names, shall we? Let's talk a little about this Ao prefix. Uh, Eomer. Uh, the Eo is used all over the place in Rohan, and it means warhorse or or charger in the cavalry sense, right? It means warhorse. It is it is apparently just a prefix of great honor in Rohiric culture. Uh, the Mer in Eomer means great or magnificent. The Mund in Eomund means protector, but that's not all. We're gonna see others. Eowin. Win in Eowin means. Um, Interestingly, it means a friend or lover, like intimate friend or platonic lover. There's a kind of interesting duality and crossover there, which I like quite a lot. Uh, we're going to meet uh, Eothane in just a moment. Uh, Thane there means simply soldier. And of course, this gets us into Tolkien's fun with Anglo-Saxon. You know, <laughs> that's the, the kid's book that he would have written. He loves taking simple Anglo-Saxon words and turning them into names. Most of the, the kings of the Rohirrim have names that mean king or lord or chief or elder or something. Uh, Theoden, uh, son of Thangle, we're going to get to Theoden king. Theoden king, by the way, is given in the Anglo-Saxon form. That is to say that that in Anglo-Saxon, you wouldn't have said King Theoden, you would have said Theoden King. It would have been Theoden uh, Kimri would have been the the the, um, the word used as a, as a suffix to kind of denote that rank. That's why the writers of Rohan refer to Theoden King instead of King Theoden. So Theoden is the Anglo-Saxon word that means chief of men or king. And his father, Thengel, that is the Anglo-Saxon word for prince. He just loves this stuff. Tolkien loves using Anglo-Saxon words and giving them the most literal meaning here. Um, while we're talking about etymology here in the last few minutes, Rohan means horse land. It is derived from the Sindarin. Uh, the, the first syllable there derived from the Sindarin roch, R-O-C-H, meaning horse. And then we get a permutation of that an, and, 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 on, ond kind of, of suffix, which we use to denote land, which we use to denote, you know, nation states here. We see that in, in Beleriand has the same thing. Um, uh, Lothlorien and, and Ithilien and Eregion, you know, all of these places have like similar permutations there. So this is just simply the land of the horse. Roch an or Roch and contracted to, to Rohan. The Rohirrim translates as the people of the horse lords, or just the horse lords, call their own land the Riddermark, which is the land of knights, or for short, just the Mark. So Rohan and Riddermark are this country, that is this region, used to be a part of Gondor, was ceded to men of the north following their, their military assistance 500 years ago. So Rohan and the Riddermark are the same place. Outsiders refer to it as Rohan, People who live there refer to it as the Riddermark. The people who live here are the Rohirrim, the horse lords. And as I said, Rohirric is our preferred adjectival form and also the name that we will give to the language that they speak here, which is distinct from the language of Gondor. We get that beat here. Uh, tone like to the speech of Boromir, man of Gondor. There is something about Boromir, man of Gondor, which I like a lot here. Because we don't need to describe who Boromir is, right? We've spent a lot of time dealing with Boromir in the last couple of pages, so we know where he's from. We know what's up. But Man of Gondor here, 
feels like a, a title. It feels like we are properly respectful of Boromir in this moment. Um, guys, I am, I am, yes, uh, Ritter says Sophia, a writer in, in Norway, yes, um, and Mark or March uh, means borderland, yes, Mark here did come into English as, as March, the Marches, the Borderlands, right, we'll, we'll see versions of that in, uh, in, in Tolkien too, yeah. Yes, a writer meaning writer, yeah, this is the wonderful thing about, about, you know, Western European languages. Uh, Tolkien did not dally with the Romance languages. He didn't give a damn about the Romance languages. He was, in fact, outright suspicious of the Romance languages. But Anglo-Saxon, that's a language he can get behind. He can make that work. Old English, the Norse languages, he can pull all of these influences in. And if you are a scholar of these things, and I, I should say, am not a scholar of these things, I have a appreciation for Anglo-Saxon culture, for the Anglo-Saxon language, and for the ways in which those things are adapted for Tolkien's use here. But if you are a true scholar here, you will find a great deal of specificity in the writers of Rohan, in the Rohirrim, and you will find a much clearer distinction between the Rohirrim and the men of Gondor and even the men of Arnor in the north, the Dunedain of, of the north, you'll find a clearer distinction there than the casual reader will, because Tolkien did very little here with regards to the writers of Rohan without great care and specificity. So we're going to be talking about some of that and I will do my best to kind of uh, illuminate that as we move forward through the rest of this book. Though if I falter, if I, if I get things wrong, then I trust that you will be forgiving because as I say, this specifically, Anglo-Saxon culture and history specifically is not my primary area of study though. Some fine day I will have the time to sit down and you know read a few books. I think that is going to do it for us. I really do have to wrap up. Let's, okay, we've got two minutes left. Let's cancel this slide. We will conclude this chapter later uh, in, in the series. We'll later in the series, he said ambiguously. Yeah, we're going to do three or four more sessions and then I'll circle back around to the rest of this chapter. No, we'll conclude this chapter and the conversation with AMR at the beginning of next week's session and then we will push on into the third chapter, the uruk -hai, which is good because that's not a terribly long chapter. Anyway, we'll have some things to talk about. Will the live tweets discussions be on the theatrical or extended editions of Jackson's adaptations? Asks Katie in the chat. The extended. Um... I do not see the virtue of the theatrical cuts of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. By contrast, you'll see on the shelf behind me here, I do have the extended cuts of the Hobbit movies, and I think I prefer... Okay, I prefer the extended cut of the first Hobbit movie. I prefer the theatrical cuts of the subsequent Hobbit movies. That's pretty much where I am with that. But to my mind, there is no virtue in the theatrical cuts of the, uh, of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I think that Jackson obviously edited down according to the demands of the studio, but I genuinely believe, and, and certainly this is confirmed by many, many sources on the, the, the Blu-rays and DVDs, um, that the extended editions are the fullest representation of Jackson's intent as director. So we'll, we'll definitely be looking at the, uh, the fullest possible expanded versions. And we will also, I should say, we're going to look at Fellowship within the next few weeks. We're going to look at Two Towers when we're done with this book. Then we're going to cover The Return of the King. We may... No, okay, we probably won't look at The Return of the King specifically, but at some point in the fairly near future, within the next three to four months, I am going to do a Lord of the Rings extended edition live tweet marathon. Just as I did with all of the Star Wars movies very recently, I'm going to do all of the Lord of the Rings in one day. Um, gosh, okay. I, I can't. I'm afraid I can't. There are excellent questions here, you guys. I'm so sorry, but I really do have a hard out. I absolutely have to, to conclude there. Let me very, very quickly show you our... Uh, 
our slide here. If I can skip ahead, I can share this with you and show you that next session, book three, chapter three, the Urukai, that is at 4 p.m. Eastern next Thursday, October 26th, 2017. That will be our last afternoon session for a while. We'll be back to the evenings after that. But thank you all so much for joining me here this afternoon. It's been an absolute pleasure to see some new faces, and I hope that you have enjoyed your time here. That's going to do it, though. I will talk to you all again soon. Until then, take care. Thank you.